we have this um, brochure that I just wrote called the sukkah. Okay, what's a sukkah? You see that little shack out there? Okay, that's very biblical. Okay, very biblical. And if you can pick one of these up when you leave. And I wrote something in, in which it, it lets you know about the sukkah, what it means to those in the body of Christ. This has a deep significance to the Christian. And um, I want to invite you. I talked to the, the Messianic rabbi of Beth Messiah, and he, and he said, I need to invite you folks to this function. So I thought about it, and I said, yes, I will invite you. <laughs> so um, at 6 o'clock p.m., that's this Thursday, there's nothing really going on. So you might as well come to our, <laughs> to our, to our Sukkot party, okay? It's a party. It's a fun time. You will enjoy yourself. And there will be something I know you really love, lots of food, okay? And when you come, just you can just bring a little something, okay? Everybody brings a little something, and we got a lot of stuff, okay? So you're going to want to be there. And um, if you want to know what Hachsameach means, happy holidays. That's what it really is means. You know, when you don't know what to say, you can always say Hachsameach. Good luck in trying to say that. Okay, so pick one of these up on the way out. You're going to find it real interesting to see what this really means to you, folks, the body of Christ. Okay? Amen. We had a, we had a, uh, a meeting today of um, people praying for the National Day of Prayer for Jerusalem, and I was glad to see different people here, and some of the ladies have stayed here, and some of my friends from Women's Aglow, and... Um, it's a wonderful thing that we're able to host this. You know, you've got to be specific on what you pray for. And these, these ladies and, and gentlemen, they were very specific on points to pray for. kind of reminds me of this, this, the 60-year... It's, it's a story that Spilch, Marty Spilch has told me. Okay. <laughs> It, it's about a 60-year-old guy and a 60-year-old woman. They're married. They've been married for many years. And, and um, in, in his prayer closet, the guy said, Lord, I kind of wish I was married to someone 30 years younger than me. Just like that, he turned into a 90-year-old. <laughs> you, better, you, be, you better be specific on how you're praying. <laughs> Gary, that's a good one, huh? You like that one? I've waited a while to find a place to put that. Okay, in, before we pray, I want us to look at Mark 1, verse 14. Uh, I only got about three hours sleep last night. So, this should be a very interesting message. Mark 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, in those days, to the Galileans hearing that the kingdom of God is near, it wasn't really cut and dry. They weren't really, what does this really mean, the kingdom of God is near? It wasn't cut and dry. Why? Because they didn't have the New Covenant Scriptures to help them define what the kingdom of God is really all about. They had an idea, and they were really fractioned on the ideas that they had. Some might have thought that it meant the state of things in heaven and on earth. Some might have thought it meant 
the reign of the Messiah on earth. Some might have thought it meant the establishment of believers on earth. Some might have thought it meant the reign of Messiah in the hearts of his disciples. And some might have thought it meant the beginning, something new, when Messiah would set up his kingdom and begin his dominion on earth. To me, it could mean all the, it means all the above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this good time when I get to share with my, my friends the good news. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, in the beginning, the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed, it really only, in many ways, per, per, um, included only the Jewish people. That's who the people were that he was talking to. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, things soon changed when the Jewish believers heard that non-Jewish people were hearing and believing the Jewish gospel of salvation. It got really um, tense. And the question of the time was, how could Gentiles be part of the kingdom of God when they were not Jewish? Surely they had to convert to Judaism. How can God accept them? Now to understand the thinking of that time, we have to understand that in those days, there were two famous schools of thought headed by two very famous rabbis. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shemei. It was it was their um, debates that helped shape the teaching of Judaism and even Christianity today, their debates. Tradition teaches that they argued more than 300 issues, but only five of them are recorded today that we can read. And they're in the, the Talmud. What is the Talmud? The Talmud is a large collection of debated teaching and laws compiled and written before the 8th century A.D., and it's a book of Jewish law based on the Old Testament. Now, the five recorded disputes of Halil and Shemei were, who can study the Torah? Now, I want you to understand this so you can understand Acts 15. Who can study the Torah? Now, Shemei believed that and argued that only worthy students should be admitted to study the Torah. Halil believed and argued that Torah should be taught to anyone in the expectation that they would repent and become worthy on the way. That was one of the debates. Another debate is telling lies. For example, should one tell his ugly bride that she's beautiful? Did you hear what I said? Should one tell an ugly, an ugly bride, an ugly bride, that she's beautiful? Shammai said that it was wrong to lie. Halil said that all brides are beautiful on their wedding day. Amen. On the issue of divorce, Shammai taught that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression. Halil allowed divorce for even trivial offenses such as burning a meal. Regarding Hanukkah, you know there's still debates on Hanukkah. Who, how do you spell this Hanukkah? 
Some spell it with a C, some spell it with an H, you know. Regarding Hanukkah, Shammai believed and argued that on the first night, eight candles should be lit, and then they should decrease on each successive night, ending with one on the last night. Halil believed and argued that one should start with one light and increase the number on each night, ending with eight. The teachings of Shammai had foreign policies that were similar to those of the zealots. So many zealots followed the teachings of Shammai. Who were the zealots? They were first century political group of Judean Jews who wanted to overthrow the occupying Roman government. And it was those same zealots that burnt the supplies in Jerusalem so that when the Romans, when the Roman army attacked them in 70 AD, they were short of food and supplies because the zealots burnt most of their food. Things got so bad between those two houses of thought that those who followed Shammai, they refused to publicly pray with those who followed Halil. It's kind of like the Democrats and Republicans today. You know what I mean? Now back to the question. How could Gentiles be part of the kingdom of God when they're not Jewish? Should they convert to Judaism? Again, the teachings of Halil and Shammai came into play. So without much commentary, we're going to read about this controversy. In Acts 14, verse 15, and then we're going to read through to 1511. I want you to get the full context of this. So read up there with me. When some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium um, and won the crowd over, they stoned, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, and went back into the city. Isn't that something? Here the guy's getting stoned. I mean, I can't help but to comment on this stuff. He, 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 he gets stoned. People think he's dead, which means he's probably bleeding profusely. You know, when you get hit in the head, blood just flows. So he probably got hit in the head a few times, and blood's flowing over the place. He probably got, he got knocked down. He um, maybe even got knocked out, and, and the, the stone throwers thought he, he, he's, he, he's dead. But it wasn't the case. It says, um, after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back in the city. The next day, he and, the, he and Barnabas left for Derby. I'd leave also if that happened to me. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. So they go on preaching. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church uh, with prayer and fasting, committed them to, to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Psyda, they came um, into Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word um, in Perga, they went down to Attila. From Attila, they sailed back to Antioch. These were busy men. They, uh, where they had been uh, committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the doors of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This was 
taught. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So the question was, the Gentiles coming into the, into the body of believers, do they have to convert to Judaism? The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news spread, this news made all the, all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the laws of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, I wonder how much that discussion was. Much discussion. Peter got, uh, I, this was heated. If you could see the, the, the political times of, of Halil and Shammai, this was, they were, these people were divided. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and belief. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Now Peter here is referring to the yoke of legalism taught by man. It was a legalism. See, God said this, but then they would say this and this and this, and they stretched out what God said where they actually perverted much of the... um, commandments of God. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Can you imagine? This would make a good movie. But you'd have to understand the arena that it's done in. Now, roughly 12 years um, from that decision in Jerusalem, Paul wrote to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. And in that letter, he mentioned their incredible new life since they become joined to God and the Jewish believers through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, they be, the, the, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, the Gentiles, that they became joined with the people of Israel. And in Ephesians 11, Therefore remember, he, he writes, Remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth are called and circumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, he's our shalom, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, 
the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. See, what he's talking about here, it's not the, it's, 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 it's not the Torah he's talking about. He says it, it's, we're no longer, um, we no longer approach God Th- through the Torah. We now approach God through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Commandments and regulations. Commandments and regulations. Let me explain something to you. Um, his, let me t- explain some of this. Um, there was laws of cleanliness that if you, if, um, you touched the body uh, 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 and they were oozing pus or something, you had to con- say yourself unclean and you had to be away from the temple for X amount of time. Or if you touched a dead body or if, if you touched someone who just touched a dead body. Now, because the Gentiles were not under those laws, you couldn't tell whether what they touched, okay? You couldn't tell if they were clean or not. So they just wouldn't, they wouldn't have these... these Jewish people, they wouldn't have any fellowship with them all at all. They'd just stay away from them, okay? And there was no fellowship, no table fellowship. You, they wouldn't even eat together. And you say, well, that's weird. We'll go to Israel and go walk through the Hasidic area of Jerusalem, and you'll see the same thing. These, uh, they, they won't even walk. If, if, you're, if, if um, you're walking on one side of the street and they're coming this way, they'll cross the street and, and walk around you. It's not that they're being arrogant. They don't know if, if you're clean or not. They don't know you're clean through the blood of Messiah. They don't, they don't know it's this kind of stuff. See, they're just trying to be obedient. They're not being arrogant. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. One new man out of the two. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So Jews and Gentiles are reconciled through the cross. By which he puts to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are, now listen. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Now, he's talking to mostly Gentiles. You are no longer foreign aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, Paul is reminding those Gentile believers to grasp the tremendous unifying accomplishments of Christ. From a historical view, before God manifests himself in the flesh, God dealt with people to be his only through the natural seed of Abraham. But since Christ, and even today, God has been moving on Jews and Gentiles throughout the world who are willing to individually become a disciple of Christ, And it's those individual believers who are the ones who make up God's new covenant kingdom of God. 
He has made fellow citizens of his eternal kingdom, his nation, his new creation. From a new creation view, Paul wrote to the believers in Galatia, in Galatians 3, verse 14, he said, He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, from a new covenant view, so we looked at a historical view, a new creation view, from a new covenant view, God is dealing with a, a new body of believers who make up the citizenship of the kingdom of God. And these citizens are both individual Jews and Gentiles who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. That's people within the kingdom of God. To anyone in the world who would want to be reconciled to God through Christ, God promises to give a new spirit. He promises to dwell within them. God promises to give them citizenship in his kingdom, of which Jerusalem has and always will be its capital. The capital is where the king rules from. And when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to Cudahy. He's coming back to Jerusalem. And that's why, as citizens of God's kingdom, of which we are, if you're born again, we must continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's praying for the peace of the kingdom. Are you with me? This is huge. Most people don't understand. I I wrote a booklet on why pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and some of you had the courage to read it. You know, but there are reasons. But I've talked to many pastors, and I said, you know, you know, you're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They say yes. I say, do you? He says, sometimes. Oh, why? The Bible says so. I'm not really sure. Uh, God wants us to know. We're praying. We're praying. There's many reasons why we pray. But one reason is that we're praying for our kingdom, the kingdom of God. That there be peace. And, we're, and whether you know it or not, you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. That came with your salvation, whether you wanted it or not. So you need to be concerned for the kingdom. And you need to pray for peace. Let's all stand together, please. In Psalm 122, 6-9, I'd like us all to read this out loud. I'll say, ready, go, and we'll do it. Psalm 122, verse 6 to 9. Ready, go. Pray for the peace in Jerusalem. May all who love the city prosper, O Jerusalem. May there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. Is this important? Yes, it is. This is extremely important. We pray for the peace 
of our kingdom. I want to end with God blessing you with number 621. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace, the shalom in your heart as you're praying for the peace of our kingdom. In Jesus' precious name. We all said, Amen. 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 God bless you. I love